As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Northangley, welcome uh, to a new seven-week series called Abide, a people apprenticed to Jesus in worship. My name is Matthew. If we have not met yet, it's good to meet you. Thank you for being here. Um, and if this is your first Sunday, you've come on a, a wonderful Sunday because we are beginning seven weeks, seven weeks on worship, seven weeks on learning to abide in the presence of God, seven weeks on cultivating a deep, deep love for God. And before we dive into the series, what I want to do is I'd like to give a little recap and pray. And so let me just give you a quick recap to kind of orient all of us uh, in terms of where we're at as a church, in terms of the vision that we've been uh, kind of, uh, you know, moving forwards in uh, since 2018. So some of you will remember, maybe you were attending our church in 2018. We started uh, what is truly a vision for us to be a people who are following Jesus in obedience, a people who are disciples of Jesus. And the language we're using is apprenticeship, apprenticeship to Jesus. We want to fully follow Jesus in all of life, we want everything Jesus has for us. We want to be faithful. We want to listen to him. We want our lives shaped, transformed, changed by Jesus. That is like the vision. That's the heart beat of our uh, church community. And this is, this is the, the journey we're on. This is the way. And we want to be intentional, series by series, for many years, to continue to talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus in all of life. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through a really quick, quick recap. Um, I try to do this at least once a year, to do a recap of where we've been, and uh, this will uh, give you a greater understanding of, of where we're going in the years to come. So... Some of you will remember in the fall of 2018, we began to talk about uh, discipleship in a very focused way, and we were using the language of apprenticeship in a series we called This Is Life. And hopefully for all of you visual learners, these slides will remind you of the series that we were in. And so we started off there that fall in 2018. And then after that, we did a series that winter called Life Together. And any of you who have attended our church for any amount of time, you'll know that we really care about community. We don't believe that you're called to follow Jesus alone, as a lone ranger, that you're meant to be part of a body, a family, a community. And we do this together. We follow Jesus together. And then we had a series uh, called On Our Knees, where we were learning to pray like Jesus. Jesus taught his followers how to pray. And so we wanted to listen in on that and learn uh, to pray like Jesus prayed. Then uh, in the winter, we looked at a series called Loved. We walked through a series called Loved. We wanted to learn to follow Jesus when it came to pretty big questions about identity, sexuality, and gender. Then um, in the fall of, I think, 2020, we uh, did a series called Scripture, Scripture, uh, which is not hard to understand what that was about. That was about the Bible, that we wanted to learn to read the Bible, uh, which contains the story, the truth, the authority of God, and uh, we wanted to be shaped by Jesus in that way. Then we did a series called Shalom, Shalom. Now, just so you know, the Scripture and Shalom series, I think we're all online. This is when we were all uh, tucked in our homes during the pandemic. And so the Shalom series was important because we were learning to try to follow Jesus in an angry, anxious, and polarized age. And, uh, you know, 
uh, pandemic equals polarization, right? Can I get an amen? So we were learning to be peacemakers, right? We needed to learn the peace of Jesus. What does it mean to reconcile, to be peacemakers during that time? Then we did a series called Forgive Us, Forgive Us, which to be honest is one of the most practical, one of my favorite, because we were talking about confession. What does it mean to confess our sins, to walk in the light, to be a people of repentance, to go on a journey of freedom? Um, Jesus is calling us into freedom. And so that was an important series. Then uh, I think in the fall of 2021, we did uh, the gift of the Spirit because we wanted to understand who the Holy Spirit was and what are the gifts that he gives his people and what does it look like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we wanted to understand him in, in a deeper way. We felt like that's important when we're following Jesus to understand the work of the Spirit. Then that winter, we decided to talk about the digital age we live in. What does it look like to follow Jesus in the digital age? And so we did a series called Digitology. And uh, we want to be faithful to Jesus with our screens, with our devices in a distracted world. Uh, how can we be faithful to him? And then uh, last spring, we did a series called The Kingdom. Because you cannot follow Jesus unless you understand that he's the king of a kingdom, right? Like, it'll be very difficult for you and I to follow Jesus unless we understand what he meant when he talked about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And if you're interested, feel free to check out that series. That's essential in terms of understanding uh, Jesus. And then this last fall, we looked at the Jesus revolution, the Jesus revolution, because we wanted to see the impact Jesus has had on our world, that the values and ethics of Jesus really are good for the world. If you were to ask, is Jesus good for the world? Yes, Jesus is very good for the world. His teachings, his life, all of it has changed the world. And so we looked at many of the values of Jesus, values like compassion and equality and many others that have really changed our world. And then most of you will know that the most recent series we did was called Leading Together because we really want to know Jesus's heart for both men and women and the leadership of his people, of his church. And so we saw that men and women are called into total partnership of equality and ministry for his glory. And on top of all these series, some of you know we kind of jump in and out of the Gospel of Luke. Why is that? Because we love Jesus and we want to spend a lot of time with Jesus. So we thought we'd walk through an entire book of the life and teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And so we want to just be anchored in Jesus. And so this all brings us to today. To today, for a couple years, I've been thinking about a series on worship. On worship. What does it look like to be a people of worship? Together, what would it look like to learn to worship God together? It is, a, it is a key pillar in what it means to be a disciple, is to be a worshiper. So let's go on a seven-week journey, and let's learn what it means to worship the living God. So we pray, hungry, I come to you, for I know you satisfy. I'm empty, but I know your love does not run dry. And that's our prayer, Jesus, as we come to you. For the next seven weeks, would you teach us what it means to be a people who worship? God, in many ways, I know I've kind of just taken for granted uh, what worship means. But Lord, would you lead us deeper into your heart that we would see your character? God, that we would uh, be shaped as we come near you and your love and your majesty 
And Lord, may you truly be glorified. May your name be lifted up these seven weeks. May you receive all the glory and the honor as you shape us and form us to be a worshiping people. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Again, as the deer pants for streams of water. Right now in your mind, think of a panting deer, right? His tongue is out. He's in a desert place. He's looking around, right? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? So when can I go meet with God? In other words, when can I go worship God? I had a really beautiful experience one time uh, in 1999. I was on a trip with uh, friends to do some ministry in Uganda. So we flew Vancouver to London, London to Entebbe. But when we were in London, you know, it's one of those stopovers where you just like, you know, run out of the Heathrow airport and see what you can of the city of London in like 12 hours. And then you got to get back to the airport. And so... We were doing that, and one of the stops that we had was St. Paul's Cathedral, which I know many of you in the room, if you've been to London, you've been to St. Paul's, right? It's a beautiful cathedral built in 1710 by Sir Christopher Wren, absolutely majestic. And we went to a service. It was on a Saturday. We went to a Saturday afternoon or evening service where there was an Anglican boys' choir singing in St. Paul's Cathedral. I mean, if you want beauty. <laughs> this just listening to this boys choir, worshiping God at Saint, in St. Saint Paul's Cathedral. Then quickly went back to the airport, hopped on a flight, flew to Entebbe, quickly drove to where we were staying, and then it was Sunday morning. And so we went to a rural village in Uganda and went to a little tiny church in these kind of rolling, if you've been to Uganda, it's beautiful rolling hills of green and there's this little building and it was made of mud walls with a tin roof and we walked into much joy, right? Much joy. And there were kids who were just giving her on little drums. There were like multiple drums, like, you know, five, six drums and kids were just giving it and uh, tambourines. And then, and then they were singing a song and the song was Jesus is the winner man. And we all just like move our arms around. Jesus is the winner man, we're clapping. And then they have a verse which is, Satan is the loser man. At which point everyone goes down like this and they sway their arms like this. Satan is the loser. He's down there, loser, you know. And uh, the best part is like, none of us knew the song, uh, the uh, Canadians who showed up for worship. So everyone sings, Jesus is the winner man, you know, and then boom, the whole church goes down and it's only the Canadians standing. We're like, go down. So Satan is, the, what are we saying? Satan is loser? Yes, he's the loser. <laughs> it was great. Also beautiful, right? Also beautiful. It was so amazing to be there, to hear the beauty of the worship of, uh, you know, beautiful service that goes on for, you know, you know, we're so glued to our time. I mean, everybody turn around. Look at that clock. What's it doing? You know, they don't have that clock in Africa. I just want to say, I, I think I was meant to be a pastor in Africa, right? There's no clock. Um, you know, and so, but, there, but what, what is the deal? You know, so you're in St. Paul's Cathedral with an Anglican boys choir. And then within, you know, a number of hours, you're in rural Africa with these uh, beautiful kids playing drums. And it's just, both are beautiful. Both are worship. 
So, so why, why is it that hundreds of millions of people all over the world are gathering for worship today? Today. Just to come together, to sing, to worship the living God? Why is it that every country in the world come with completely different styles of worship, but that Jesus' followers are gathered every Sunday? What, what, what is the point? What's the purpose? Why are you here? Why are you here today at this worship gathering? Because you're hungry. Even if it's the smallest part of you, you're thirsty for the living God. Uh, The dictionary defines worship like this. To regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. And so... When we think of Christian worship, we regard the living God with great and extravagant respect, honor, and devotion. Yes, worship involves music in the church, but we all know, many of us know, worship does not have to be music. Worship is to connect with the living God with extravagant respect, honor, devotion, and love. Right now, let's do a thought experiment. If, if you and I were having coffee and I would just say, hey, Frank, Sarah, whatever your name is, uh, what is your favorite, uh, if you could picture your favorite day, what would your favorite day look like? You know, what would you be doing? Some of you would be golfing. Some of you would be on a beach. How many of you would be like skiing or something like that? Would that be your perfect day? Any winter people, your perfect day? Three, four, four of you, yeah. For most of us, it would be like the beach, right? (laughs) Most of us, right, pool, sunshine, golf, you know, something like that. And then picture what you're eating. What are you eating, right? Your favorite food, you know? And who are you with? Who are some of your favorite people? So you picture that day. What's your favorite day? When you are stressed out in your cubicle at work, you know, pause for a second. Where would I want to be? And just go to that place, you know? You can go there right now. Just, I'm going to give you three seconds. Go there. Picture that place. One, two, three. Okay, snap you out of reality. Okay, back. You're here. All right. Well, what's interesting, the psalmist 3,000 years ago tells us his dream of his perfect day, of where he wants to be. Here it is. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Notice the perfect destination for the psalmist is the temple, the dwelling place of God. His soul yearns. He's fainting for the courts of the Lord. It's all he can think about. I wish I was there. I wish I was in Jerusalem. I I wish I was in the heart of the city of Jerusalem. I, I I wish I was in the temple of the living God. You see, for those of you who might be new to the Bible or to Christianity, in Israel, prior to the coming of Jesus, the temple was the epicenter of where God was. The temple was the center of worship. And there were all kinds of courts around the temple, but there was a, 
There was an inner room. It was called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was something called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim, two angels. And between these, the, the wings of these two angels was an empty space. And, and in that empty space was where Yahweh dwelled. That's God. God lived right there between the cherubim, above the Ark, in the Holy of Holies. And there was only one person allowed into the Holy of Holies per year. That was the high priest. Not even all the other priests were allowed in, just the high priest. And just once a year. And so there were courts in the temple. And you could only be so near God, right? But if you were in the temple, if you were in the courts of the temple, you were close to God. There you would hear prayers and singing to God. The closer you were to the heart of the temple, the closer you were to God. It was a geographic thing, right? And so the people of Israel, some of you know this, would have three festivals a year where they would travel. And so um, if you were part of a family, let's say you're a kid growing up and you're like, okay, three times a year we go on vacation and we live in Galilee. So then we head south with our family in a big caravan to the city of Jerusalem. And there we spend about a week eating a lot of food and uh, celebrating and worshiping in the temple and uh, remembering what God has done for us. So several times a year, there was a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. It's so fun. It's such a cool thing, right? And uh, on one of those trips, you'll remember Jesus, uh, they lose Jesus. Remember that story? Mary and Joseph cannot find Jesus. He's 12 years old and uh, they find him in the temple, right? That's because there would have probably been a massive caravan of people making a big pilgrimage um, to and from the city. And so you can get lost in a big caravan. But that's the idea. So for many months, if you were in Israel, you weren't near the temple, You were way up north in Galilee fishing or farming, and then on a hard fishing day or farming day, you would close your eyes and be like, oh, my perfect day. I'd be back in Jerusalem, I'd be in the temple, and I'd be worshiping Yahweh, right? So that's as he's tending his nets, or, you know, somebody's at home stressed with the kids, and Somebody else is baking and somebody else is farming and somebody else is, you know, fixing their wagon. They just pause and they go, oh, my perfect day would be back, would be in the festival, back in Jerusalem, worshiping God. I just, I'm trying to give this a flavor for the psalm here, right? And so for numerous amounts of the year, you're away from the city of Jerusalem. Do you guys remember the feeling of leaving summer camp? Remember that feeling? Some of you may have gone to summer camp as a kid. Some of, some of you went to just normal summer camp. Some of you went to Christian summer camp. But either way, when you left, you were just like, oh, I'm going to miss these people. I'm going to miss this experience. For those of you who went to Christian camp, you'll be like, oh, I, I miss the worship. I miss feeling close with God. Now I'm going back to school or we're going back to work. And will I feel close to God when I'm away from camp? That's the same idea here. Right? And so the psalmist says, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. If you could think of one place in the world, it's right there in the court. And then he says this, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Just pause. Better is one day in your courts, God, than a thousand elsewhere. That's, that's the exchange I would do. I would spend, if I could just have one moment, one experience, one sense of nearness with you in the temple, I, I would take that more than a thousand days elsewhere, right? That's how, that's how hungry the psalmist is to be near God. And what's this thing about a doorkeeper? He'd rather be a doorkeeper 
than to dwell in the tents of the wicked? What does that mean? Well, I, I did some research on doorkeepers in the temple, and the doorkeeper in the temple had to guard the door into the courts of the temple. And just so you know, there were rules about who would be allowed into the courts of the temple. Um, and th they were based on hygiene, right? So you're not allowed to go into the courts if you had, like, for instance, a skin disease or something like that, right? And so, like, you're not allowed in to the temple. And then the doorkeeper also had to make sure no one's stealing things from the temple because, of course, the temple is filled with all kinds of ornaments and gold pieces. And so you're not getting out. You're not stealing something from the temple. And so when you hear doorkeeper, you should just insert bouncer, right? That's, you know, hey, show me your skin disease there, right? And it's just like, you're not leaving here with those golden plates, you know, whatever, right? It's a tricky job. You're not the nice guy right? You're not the nice guy. You're probably not well-liked. And so what the psalmist is saying is he's saying something like this. He'd say, I'd prefer the trickiest job in the temple than the best seats in the tents of wickedness, right? Doing anything you want in the tents of wickedness, living life as you please, you know, right? No rules, freedom, quote-unquote, Right? It's a freedom that leads to slavery, but whatever. Tense of the wickedness. That's the idea. Uh, so the psalmist is saying, I would prefer the difficult position near God than to have everything with the wicked. Also, a doorkeeper was on the edge of the temple area. So actually, when you look at the temple, it's on the farthest part of the temple. So he's even saying this. He's saying, I'd prefer a position on the farthest edge of the temple courts than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I just want to be near God. Give me any position. <laughs> I'll do it. Put me out on the edge of the town. I'll do it. Yeah. I'll do anything to be near God. He's hungry. He's thirsty for God. So he's writing, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. This is his perfect day. That's what he dreams about. Hungry, I come to you, for I know you satisfy. I'm empty, but I know your love does not run dry. If I could just receive your love, a drop of your love. And Jesus in his life showed us that he now is the temple of God. Did you know that? As you read the story of Jesus, as you listen to his teachings, as you see all that he did, we come to find out that a building of brick and mortar, as it were, in the city of Jerusalem, well, that is no longer the place where God dwells. He doesn't dwell in a stone building anymore. Where does God dwell? In Jesus, right? In Jesus. Jesus is the temple of the living God. We no longer lead, need a building in Jerusalem to meet with God. You don't have to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to meet with God. We have Jesus. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except, a little louder, except through me. He says, through me, through me. <laughs> if you want to come to know God as Father, we come through Jesus. He's the temple. This is the mind-blowing message of Jesus. He's the place where we draw near to God. 
Again, to be clear, just to reiterate this, no more pilgrimage to Jerusalem needed to a temple made of stone. You have Jesus. If we're hungry and thirsty for God, the answer is then to know Jesus, to worship Jesus, to abide in Jesus. So let's talk about that word abide. Jesus describes our life in him like that of a branch into a vine. And so he's the vine, and we're the branches. And so where that connection happens, that's where we receive all of our life and nourishment. He says this, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The Greek word for abide can be translated live, dwell, stay. We're called to Abide, live, remain, dwell, stay in Jesus. To remain and abide in Jesus the vine is to say, this is it. Jesus is where my wisdom, my identity, my hope, my purpose, goals, love, life, all of it will come from him. I'm a branch, he's the vine, and I abide in him. I will live in him. I will remain in him. I'll dwell in him. I will stay in him. And each of us has a hungry heart. As the boss says, Bruce, he says, everybody's got a hungry heart. Be honest, what do, you, what do you hunger for? What do you long for? And then Mick Jagger reminds us that we can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> so we listen to Bruce and Mick, and we say we have hungry hearts and we can't get no satisfaction which is pretty accurate, I think. I mean, that sums up the spirit of the age, right? We have a hungry heart that's searching, desiring, seeking. But like a thirsty man in a village with unclean water, we lap up into our mouth the unclean, disease-ridden, toxic water that leads to our undoing. And yet, if we pay close attention to our longings, even our wandering and desires, corrupt desires even, we find that under the surface, there's actually a desire for God, if we're listening. Because there's a desire for intimacy, for true love and purpose and life. In 1945, uh, a novel came out called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith, written by the Scottish author, Bruce Marshall. And the protagonist of the story, Father Smith, makes a profound insight into the human heart. Father Smith says this, quote, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. What does that mean? The young man has something in his soul that is not satisfied. And he's looking in all the wrong places the young man is searching for something to quench the hunger and the thirst. And so when he rings the bell of the brothel, he's unconsciously looking for God. You and I are looking for love in all the wrong places. And deep within our heart, we find that we're restless, right? And we're wondering, well, what can satisfy? Because the pursuits that we have made in our life, and you feel free to insert on the line your pursuit of whatever that is, 
it, it never fully satisfies, no matter how good it is. And so St. Augustine writes, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That your soul and my soul, is, we're just restless, moving from thing to thing, dream to dream, pursuit to pursuit, but we were made for the living God and we're not ultimately ever at rest until we are in him. And so our hearts are restless and we consume to find a satisfaction from romantic interest to constant travel, from entertainment to food, from sports to money, from friendships to even our own children. Many of these things are good, beautiful, amazing gifts, but they cannot quench our deepest hunger and thirst. They cannot quench our deepest longings. And these longings we have, if we go deeper, we believe that they're cries for the living God. They are longings for intimacy and love that can only be satisfied by the living God. And so I'd encourage you to get curious. Get curious and start to ask, what do I want? What do I want? What am I longing for? What comes to mind? By the way, don't ignore whatever just pops in your mind, right? It's important. What do you want? Even if it's sinful in your mind, you say, actually, I, I want something that I know is not good for me. All right, take that. And now take it a layer deeper. Could it be that you're longing for true love, for intimacy, for some kind of purpose and meaning, for a deeper adventure, for a deeper hope? Could it be that you're longing for God? That if you were to dig down deep within that desire, no matter how sinful, that deep down that you're saying, actually, no, what I actually want, what I actually need is the living God. I want you. I want you. Right? And so what we do is, rather than fighting the unholy longing with some kind of head-on fight <laughs> against that temptation, what do we do? We turn. We just turn. We turn to the living God. Instead, we turn to God in worship. And really quick, many of us, in some ways, we are not capable or powerful enough in some ways to do that, and we need one another. And together, you and a friend, you and a family member, you and a life group member, you and an apprentice group member, someone, you together, you turn together to the living God. And then we don't fight temptation by simply turning away from sin. We fight temptation by wanting God more, by wanting Jesus more. God, I don't want this thing, I want you. Even if I don't feel it yet, I want you. Can I say a word to some of you in the room who are like, Matthew, that sounds like a lot of emotions, a lot of feeling I've never felt much before. I'm not sure what it feels like to want God. I would encourage you to offer up a simple prayer like this, right? 
even if I don't feel like it, God, I want you. And we bring to mind the conversation that Jesus had with his followers about bread. He told them about this amazing bread. Has anyone told you about amazing bread before? (laughs) Gotta go to this bakery, it's amazing. Go to this bakery, eat this bread, it's delicious. And he told them about this bread and he said, when you eat this bread, when you eat this bread, you'll be satisfied forever. Wow. Take us to the bread shop, La Baguette. Where is it? Jesus' followers want to know. And so they say, they say, the verse 34 in John 6, sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I'm the bread. I'm the bread. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm the bread. Come to me. Come to me with your hunger. Our secular age with our hungry hearts and our lack of satisfaction is invited and welcomed to come to Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. He's the bread. C.S. Lewis, in his novel, The Silver Chair, some of you have read the Narnia series, and uh, Lewis writes about a young girl named Jill. Jill is incredibly thirsty, and she's walking through the woods, and so she's in search of water, and we pick up the story as she begins to hear water in the forest. She hears water, uh, you know, some stream. And for those of you who are new to the Narnia series, uh, Jesus, C.S. Lewis, depicts the G, you know, Jesus as a lion, a lion named Aslan. So we'll pick up the story. You ready for story time with Matthew? Okay, here we go. <clears throat> the wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood still as if she had been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Because just on this side of the stream lay the lion. The lion. How long this lasted, how long she stood there, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure to get in a mouthful of water first, right? Then from the lion, if you're thirsty you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you're thirsty, come and drink. The voice was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink said the lion. May I, could I, 
Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Hear that again. There is no other stream. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. There's no other stream. And there's no promise that you'll remain unchanged when you start drinking from that stream, right? The lion might change you. He might shape you, transform you, but there's no other stream. And all of our life, I think of Matthew's life. Matthew's life is a constant sense of going to other streams to, in my dehydration. And I'm trying to quench my thirst, but there's no other stream. And worship, here on week one of our series on worship, worship begins when I acknowledge there is no other stream, only Jesus. Only Jesus. And so we say, hungry, I come to you for I know you satisfy. I'm empty, but I know your love does not run dry. Now what happens when we don't want God again, as I mentioned earlier? Many of us here today would say, okay, I'm not there. If I'm honest, I'm not there. I'm not sure that I want Jesus. So what do we do when we're not hungry or thirsty for the presence of God? I would encourage us to pray that simple prayer, the simple prayer. Lord, would you give me the desire to desire you? I don't feel anything, but I want to want you. I want to want you. Friends, we're, we're coming out of a polarizing pandemic. Those few years really challenged our ability to listen and love one another. We're dealing with broken relationships. Most of us are walking through painful situations. Many of us in the room are struggling with loneliness. Many of us don't know how to find a way forward with really tricky, messy, relational, financial situations future, family, health situations. Let's worship. 
Really, I just said everything I said to say, let's worship. <laughs> That's it. That's all I want to do for the next seven weeks. Let's worship. <laughs> let's spend seven weeks going back to the well, the stream. That's Jesus. Let's spend next, the next seven weeks drinking deeply from his presence. So in all of the complexity of our stories and what we're feeling and the things we're walking through, the complexity of sin and sadness, let's go back to the heart of it all, which is connecting with the living God who loves us, the living God who gave his life for us, who conquered the grave and conquers death and opens wide his arms and says, come to me and drink. Come to me and eat. I've got bread that will fill you. I've got water that will quench your thirst. And some of you, if you're like, I don't know, because I'm in the desert. I'm in a desert place. Well, good for you. Because it's in the desert where you recognize you're parched. <laughs> right? When you're in the desert, you recognize you're thirsty. Right? It's a good place to be. Because we acknowledge our thirst and we go, things are not right, I'm dehydrated, and I need to drink deep of the living God. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Friends, uh, can we stand together? I would like to invite you to seven nights of worship. For the next seven Wednesdays, I would challenge you to come as a life group, to come as a family, to come as friends, or come alone. Come together, and in this room on Wednesday night, we're going to worship. Our prayer team will be available for worship on these Wednesday nights. But it's just going to be a lot of singing, a lot of worship, a lot of lifting up the name of Jesus. And I would encourage you, even if you're just like, Matthew, I've never been good at worship. I've never liked it. I've, I'm not sure about it. And whether you're feeling joyful in life or stressed in life, whatever it is, would you just come to the well? We're going to sing together each Wednesday night. A couple of our worship nights are going to be at our Aldergrove campus, but five of the worship nights will be here at our Walnut Grove campus. And that's all we want to do. We just want to come into the presence of God. So I invite you to come. This Wednesday night will be our first night. And right now, we want to dedicate these next seven weeks to the Lord. Would you prepare your heart right now? I'd encourage you to close your eyes. We're going to spend some time in prayer. I want to let you know that throughout the next number of minutes, our prayer room is available for anyone who'd love to receive prayer. Our prayer team is going to be forward, coming forward. And I'd encourage you just to be vulnerable and real with God. Tell him where your heart is at. Tell him how you're feeling. Come in honesty before him. And our prayer team would love to pray for you. Even if you want to come forward, receive prayer, and just say, I want to want God. Would you pray for me? They'd love to pray for you for that. So Jesus, we come to you and we say, we believe that you're the bread. We believe that you offer us living water, which is your spirit. And we pray that in the coming seven weeks, you would satisfy us, that you would fill us, 
we come to you thirsty, dehydrated, hungry, and we pray that you would satisfy. We're empty, but we know that your love does not run dry.